0: Today we're talking about what might be the most insane behind-the-scenes movie story ever. A tale about a film made to catch one of history's most infamous serial killers, and how it may well have brought the director face to face with the real-life Zodiac. Got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I want to take you to the bank, to the blood Bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in b movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the Horror Geek on YouTube or for my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stalk the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video Skinamax flicks, classic horror fare, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. Today, we're tackling one of my all-time favorite movie stories, a tale so totally batshit insane that it beggars belief. It's the story of a wannabe filmmaker slash restaurant owner who decided to make a feature film for the sole purpose of capturing arguably the most infamous serial killer in U.S. history. I can pretty much guarantee this is the wildest movie background story you will ever hear. So buckle up, because we're about to take a deep dive into the bonkers story of 1971's The Zodiac Killer. It was a film written, filmed, and released for the sole purpose of trying to capture the infamous Zodiac himself. All right. Let's dive into my backstory with this one. I was a morbid kid growing up. I mean, I loved gory horror movies, splatterpunk novels by guys like John Skip, Craig Spector, and Richard Lehman, and had a really unhealthy fascination that continues to this day with shockumentaries and mondo flicks. That was the guy in your 7th grade class who could give you a full dissertation on the potential satanic implications of the crimes of Jack the Ripper, a breakdown of the history of early splatter cinema, or a minute-by-minute description of the last hour at Jonestown. <laughs> it's really amazing that I didn't date more. I mean, who would want to spend time with a dude who could prattle on endlessly about Anton LaVey and Aleister Crowley? Thanks to the internet, there's more interest than ever in this sort of thing. Everyone can click over to a gore site and test their metal. True crime podcasts make way more fucking money than this show, and Satanic Panic is back. Hey, I mean, really, what a time to be alive. And I often wonder how 12-year-old me would have reacted to a world where all the nerdy shit that I loved that got me ostracized as a kid is now totally normal. Anyway, naturally, I was interested in serial killers. I've always been fascinated by the facade of civilization, and if there's anything that makes plain the idea that polite society is indeed an illusion that would crumble into total savagery with just a few minor inconveniences, it's the idea of serial killers. These are people who walks amongst us, presenting as just as normal as you and me, but who secretly plan and commit heinous acts that a truly civilized person just wouldn't. I started where pretty much every kid starts, with Jack the Ripper. I devoured books on Saucy Jack, endlessly fascinated by the brutality of his crimes, the way he kept a major city in complete panic, how he taunted everyone, and how he got away with it all. And really, that last part is the thing that always intrigued me the most. A lot of killers get caught. But Jack never did, and his identity remains a mystery, full of possibilities that run the gamut from intriguingly plausible to ridiculously insane over a century later. When I'd finally exhausted the material on the Ripper, it was off into the more modern pantheon of killers, which immediately led me to the Zodiac. I don't remember exactly how I came to procure a copy of Robert Graysmith's 1986 nonfiction chronicling of the Zodiac's killing spree. I might have actually checked it out from the library and just never returned it. So, sorry if you're still waiting on it. That being said, I devoured that thing over the summer of 1986. In the Zodiac, we basically had an American Jack the Ripper equivalent. He was a brutal killer, he taunted the cops, he kept the San Francisco Bay Area citizenry in complete terror, and he was never caught despite everyone looking for him. While well, the Zodiac theories never got quite as crazy as the ones about Son of Sam being a part of a bigger conspiracy involving the processed church, which was the foundation of Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, another tome I read and reread, which got turned into a pretty decent Netflix documentary series in 2021, I was still utterly captivated by the story. Who was the Zodiac? What was the motive? And most importantly, why did he stop? Or did he? The Zodiac was a boogeyman still potentially out there stalking deserted byways like some slasher movie villain. I don't have Gray Smith's book handy to fact check this part, but I'm 99.9% sure that reading it was the first time I'd ever heard about Tom Hansen's 1971 film, The Zodiac Killer, which was the first film to be released based on the killer's heinous crimes. And really, unless you were a hardcore B-movie nerd, and I was, but the film predated my birth, by 1986, you'd probably not been all that familiar with it either. The Zodiac in popular culture is something I was already aware of, given that 1971's Dirty Harry was loosely inspired by Zodiac. The killer was replaced by Andrew Robinson's Scorpio, who was absolutely based on the real Zodiac. But I was not familiar with Hanson's film. I have written it off as a crass and cheap exploitation cash-in attempt, and believe me, I do not have anything against that, except the book mentioned that the film was made to lure out the killer, and they actually caught someone pulling a Pee-wee Herman in the theater who was considered a person of interest. Again, I don't have the book handy, so if the details between what's in the book and what my brain remembers are slightly off, blame my brain. It turns out the part about the Pee-wee Herman wasn't accurate, and the real story was much more interesting. But I wouldn't learn about that for years, so we'll get to that in a bit. Naturally, The Zodiac Killer made it onto the list of movies in my infamous notebook. (laughs) I really wish I still had that thing. It might be at my parents' house, or it may just be lost to time. It doesn't matter, though, because the movie was not readily available. I looked for it often, but I never found it. So it remained this sort of tantalizing mystery like the actual Zodiac. By 1999, I moved to California, right to the Bay Area in Oakland. I was basically at Zodiac Ground Zero and often went past Lake Berryessa and even stopped once just to walk around the place where Zodiac had plied his dark and malevolent trade. It was also that year I discovered the Bay Area had way better video stores than we had in Florida. And while on one of my three-hour tours through La Video in San Francisco, I found a VHS copy of The Zodiac Killer. The film itself isn't anything all that special. Tom Hansen made it for like thirteen grand. it was shot in like three weeks, sequentially no less, with a script cobbled together in like a day and a half. Hansen had been interested in being an actor, and had actually been in some movies like Hellcats. We'll talk more about Tom later, but Jesus, this dude should have been one of my grandfathers. But the backstory of the Zodiac Killer, well, that's where the magic happens. It's truly one of the weird stories where in truth is stranger than fiction and the story of making the film is more interesting than the film itself. But before we get into all the fine details in this ridiculously amazing story, let's take a quick break so I can pay some bills. When we come back, I get to fulfill my lifelong dream of hosting a true crime podcast as I set the stage for Hanson's film by highlighting the Zodiac's crime spree. So stick around. In the annals of criminal history, few cases evoke as much fascination and dread as that of the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac was a malevolent force that emerged in the late 1960s, casting a chilling shadow over the tranquil landscapes of the San Francisco Bay Area. The first ominous note in his Symphony of Terror was struck on December 20th, 1968, when David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen became unwitting victims of a faceless predator in Benicia, California. This seemingly random, motiveless act marked the beginning of a reign of terror that would persist for years as the Zodiac Killer embarked on a series of brutal, ritualistic murders that sent shockwaves through the community and confounded law enforcement. What set the Zodiac Killer apart from other infamous criminals of the era was not only the ruthlessness of the crimes, but also the calculated and brazen manner in which the killer flaunted his actions. The Zodiac reveled in notoriety, taunting authorities and the public alike through a series of meticulously crafted letters sent to newspapers and police departments. Each correspondence was a macabre blend of menace and intellectual superiority, showcasing a mind that delighted in the psychological torment of those desperately seeking to unmask the elusive murderer. The Zodiac's preferred MO was as disturbingly consistent as it was unpredictable. Couples parked in isolated areas, often referred to as lover's lanes, became the killer's primary targets. As mentioned earlier, the Zodiac's grim saga commenced on a winter night in Benicia, California, on December 20th, 1968. The unsuspecting victims, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, met a tragic end while enjoying a night out. The seemingly motiveless acts sent shockwaves through the community and set the stage for a series of macabre crimes that would grip the region. From there, we fast forward to July 4th, 1969 in Vallejo, California, where Darlene Farron and Michael Mago fell prey to the Zodiac's brutality. The killer's audacity reached new heights as he approached their car, opening fire and leaving Farron dead while Mago suffered severe injuries. This incident marked a deviation from the previous crime, revealing the killer's evolving modus operandi. The Zodiac's next strike took place on September 27, 1969 at Lake Berryessa, California. This time, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard became the victims. Wearing a hooded costume with a distinctive cross symbol on the chest, the Zodiac attacked the couple with a knife. The audacious killer left a chilling message on Hartnell's back, a circle with a cross through it, presumably crosshairs and a rifle scope further cementing his notoriety. Our killer's reign of terror didn't end there, though. The Zodiac Killer would strike again on October 11, 1969, in San Francisco. Paul Stein, a 29-year-old cab driver, picked up a fare in the Presidio Heights neighborhood. The passenger, who turned out to be the Zodiac Killer, shot Stein multiple times. After the attack, the Zodiac took a piece of Stein's bloodstained shirt as a gruesome trophy. The killer later sent letters to newspapers, including a piece of Stein's shirt, to claim responsibility for the crime. As the Zodiac's crimes unfolded, police grappled with seemingly random and motiveless acts, recognizing a pattern of escalating brutality and theatricality. The killer's brazen nature and meticulous planning suggested a cold and calculating mind, leaving investigators puzzled and the public terrified. The reign of terror orchestrated by the Zodiac Killer was characterized not only by gruesome acts of violence but also by correspondence with the media and law enforcement. Engaging in a sinister game of cat and mouse, the killer employed a series of cryptic letters, ciphers, and menacing missives to amplify the fear and confusion surrounding his identity. This chilling correspondence commenced with a letter dispatched to three Bay Area newspapers on July 31, 1969 in the Zodiac claimed responsibility for the murders of Faraday and Jensen. Taunting law enforcement and the public with cryptic clues, this letter set the tone for a pattern of communication that persisted throughout the Zodiac's crime spree. The public would hear from the killer again on August 8, 1969. This time, the letter was accompanied by a cipher containing 408 symbols, with the Zodiac claiming that its solution would unveil his identity. This triggered a frenzy of cryptanalysis, as amateur and professional codebreakers sought to decipher the message. When the solution was finally achieved, it revealed a chilling boast about the killer's desire for slaves in the afterlife. Persisting in his taunts, the Zodiac sent a Halloween card to the San Francisco Chronicle, accompanied by another complex cipher comprising 340 characters. The 340 cipher, a perplexing puzzle, remained unsolved for over 50 years, adding to the mystique of the Zodiac case killer insinuated that its solution would lead to his capture. Amateur cryptographers actually solved this one in 2020. The content of the letters and ciphers displayed a disturbing amalgamation of arrogance, sadistic humor, and a chilling understanding of the psychological impact of his actions. The Zodiac's uncanny ability to predict police movements and manipulate the media fueled theories about his background, intelligence, and motives. As time wore on, the Zodiac's letters and ciphers remained an enigmatic puzzle for law enforcement. The killer's identity stayed shrouded in mystery, and the encrypted messages, even when partially deciphered, provided only fragmented glimpses into the mind of the murderer. As the killings continued on, the fervor of the killer's communication eventually diminished. This left investigators and the public grappling with the perplexing question of why the Zodiac abruptly ceased his ominous letters and enigmatic ciphers. The final confirmed communication from the Zodiac killer surfaced in a letter received by the San Francisco Chronicle on January 29, 1974. In this letter, the Zodiac asserted responsibility for the abduction of school bus children in Chowchilla, California, although subsequent investigations revealed this crime to be unrelated. At any rate, this communication marked the apparent conclusion of the Zodiac's overt engagement with the media and law enforcement. The cessation of communication from the Zodiac killer remains one of the enduring mysteries surrounding the case. Various theories offer glimpses into the potential motivations or circumstances that led to the killer's decision to go silent. Whether this was due to capture, death, psychological satisfaction, a change in personal circumstances, or a loss of interest, the abrupt and unexplained end to the Zodiac's letters and ciphers has only deepened the enigma surrounding one of history's most elusive and infamous criminals. Needless to say, the Zodiac Killer's reign of terror really captivated the country. People were trying to crack the codes, others were reporting suspicious neighbors and other persons of interest, and it was in the midst of this media frenzy that restaurateur Tom Hansen saw an opportunity. In 1971, against the backdrop of a nation gripped by the ongoing mystery of the Zodiac killer's identity, Tom Hansen unleashed his cinematic take on the infamous case with the release of Zodiac which was eventually retitled as The Zodiac Killer. The film, born from the morbid curiosity and collective fear surrounding the real-life unsolved crimes, sought to immerse audiences in a gripping narrative that mirrored the chilling events unfolding in the San Francisco Bay Area. Released at a time when The Zodiac Killer was still committing crimes and the terror was still fresh in the public's mind, The Zodiac Killer aimed to capitalize on the intense fascination and paranoia surrounding the case. Hansen's film dove headfirst into the shadowy world of the Zodiac, exploring the cryptic messages, gruesome murders, and the relentless pursuit of justice, all with the requisite creative liberties you'd expect from an exploitation quickie. The motivations behind the creation of Hansen's cinematic epic are arguably more interesting than the film itself. As mentioned in Gray Smith's Zodiac book, Hansen conceived the film with the idea of using it to lure out the killer and capture him in a scheme that was just harebrained enough to maybe work. But that wasn't the only motivation for the Zodiac Killer's creation. The other was one as old as the film industry itself. The allure of a payday. Temple of Schlock's Chris Paggiali conducted a series of interviews with Hanson back in the 2010s that shed a lot of new light onto the film's genesis and production. I really have to give a lot of credit to Chris's work here was vital in terms of clarifying things for this episode. Anyway, Hansen sets the stage by explaining the circumstances around the film's creation. I had a chain of pizza stores called Pizza Man. I went into that thing on a wing and a prayer. It was a good little franchise, too. I was advertising on TV, I had 60 or 70 of those goddamn places, and I was supposed to get just under $8 million from the underwriter in New York, a guy named Graham Loving, but everything went down the toilet because he went broke and I lost everything. Anyway, it all tanked, and I had to hang it up. The real story is, I was trying to make films, and I knew getting into the business was going to be tough, and I knew when you make low-budget movies, they're usually junk, because it's hard to get above that, I thought I'd just take a shortcut. I shot Zodiac for about 13 grand. Nobody got paid anything. I shot it with the intention of bringing it up to San Francisco and four-walling a theater, which I did, with six guys to set a trap and catch that son of a bitch. I was gonna catch him and use that for the end of the film, and I thought that would then launch me into making other films with a few more bucks and doing it right. Anyway, I thought you should know that my intention was to catch the Zodiac. The idea, born of both desperation and altruism, quickly came together. Hansen had already worked in low-budget cinema as an actor and had learned the key maxim to low-budget success. Keep shooting and get it in the can fast. The Zodiac Killer took this mantra to heart. Hansen shot the entire film in roughly three weeks for a paltry thirteen grand. which was basically the last of his money. The script came together in a day and a half, and honestly, the whole movie is pretty good when you consider how quickly it was assembled. Hansen really was a potential low-budget maverick in the making here, as I understand it enlisting friends and acquaintances and family members to be in the production because they'd work cheap. The locations are places he knew, where he got away with shooting without permits. The cars belonged to people involved in the film... It's a masterclass in guerrilla filmmaking in a lot of ways. Hansen explains that they literally finished the film using short ends, the term used to describe partially used rolls of unexposed film stock. So basically, they were cobbling the movie together from film scraps at the end of the production. With filming completed, Hansen was ready to launch the next phase of his plan, getting the film into a San Francisco theater to see if he could lure the killer out of hiding to see a film made on his exploits. And it's here that the story of the Zodiac Killer really gets crazy. The Zodiac Killer made its theatrical debut at the Golden Gate Theater near Market Street. The rationale was that this was close to the location of the Paul Stein killing, and where Zodiac had threatened to harm school buses full of kids. Hansen was convinced the killer was still there prowling about, and that this gave him the best chance of drawing him out into the open, he explains. When I went up there to show it, there'd been a letter every 17 days for about six months. That's why I knew he was still there, still operating, and that's why I thought he'd come to the theater to see it. He'd have to, with that sicko twisted mind. So that's why I set the trap there. By this point, the secret plan behind the film's creation was being kept under wraps. Although I have often thought if they'd said it was a film designed to catch the Zodiac, then he would have absolutely shown up. He'd have seen it as an opportunity to show off how clever and resourceful he was. But this wasn't how it played out. The film had no distribution deal in place at this point, so the Golden Gate Theater showings were coming out of Hanson's own pocket. It was not a cheap endeavor, as Hanson states. I did the thing at the Golden Gate on my own. I can't remember what it cost to forewall it or what we worked out. I think the deal was that they got 80% of the money or maybe 90%. If you're unfamiliar with the term forewalling, here's a quick, simple definition. 4 is a process through which a studio or distributor rents movie theaters for a period of time and receives all of the box office revenue. The four walls of a movie theater give the term its name. I'm pretty sure Hansen just viewed this expense as another cost of doing business, though. Because if his gamble paid off and he actually caught the Zodiac Killer at a screening of his film, he could parlay that into more movies or at least some kind of payday. With the film made and the theater booked, all that was left to do was to set the trap and wait for their serial killer to show up. I have said many times over the years that the plan to capture Zodiac here was both one part idiotic and one part brilliant. So, let's take another quick break and then we'll dive into Tom Hansen's plan to catch one of America's most elusive killers. The big hurdle that Hansen and his team had to overcome was how would you even know if the Zodiac did in fact actually show up at the theater? There was a composite sketch of the killer floating around, but holding up a photo next to every man's face who bought a ticket was probably going to give up the game pretty quickly. Hansen had a better idea, though. Yes, they'd keep an eye out for men matching the description of the Zodiac in the theater, but they also had handwriting samples from the various ciphers and other correspondence with the police. Not to mention the crude dates drawn on a car at one of the crime scenes. They could get writing samples from everyone at the screenings and compare them to the Zodiac's handwriting. Hanson was sure they'd get a match. But how would they get patrons to give up a writing sample? By giving away a prize that you had to fill out a card to win. See, I told you part of this plan was brilliant. Let's allow Hanson to explain. I talked to Kawasaki into giving us a motorcycle. Everyone who bought a ticket got a little yellow card they would fill out that said, I think the Zodiac kills because. In the lobby on the second floor, I had a display built that didn't look like there could be anybody underneath it. The motorcycle was on top of that, and the box was there to drop yellow cards in. I think the Zodiac kills because... The key here was the box the cards were dropped into looked empty, but it wasn't. Inside the box was one of Hansen's team who would check each card dropped in as an entry and compare it to the Zodiac's handwriting samples from his letters. If a card came through that looked like a potential match, the person inside the box would press a button. That button would alert the rest of the team who was stationed throughout the building, across the street, and most hilariously, a guy hiding in a freezer. Turns out the freezer idea almost killed co-writer Ray Cantrell, who was squeezed inside the device and peering through the vents, scanning people in the lobby for faces that might match the police sketches and noting who dropped cards into the box. While the freezer did indeed have vents, these were not adequate ventilation for a full-sized man, and Cantrell nearly passed out and suffocated in the icebox. Hansen explains the rationale behind the idea this way. It was an ice cream freezer. When the manager of the Golden Gate wasn't there, I brought in a freezer, which we had hollowed out so a guy could lay in there, kind of cramped up, but he could look through the vent. The idea was that if a card came through the box, the guy, under the display, could beep if it was something significant so the guy in the freezer could see who dropped it in. To further ensure they could get their man, each card had a number that presumably linked it with a ticket purchase. Yeah, they all had serial numbers 0001, 0002, 0003, and so on. Everyone got one card only, and I told those girls in the box office every night never, never, never give anybody more than one card. You must promise me that. Alright, remember this part because it's gonna be important. With the trap set, they really just needed to get the word out about the film and then set everything in motion. To do this, Hansen did some radio interviews. He made sure to express that he really just wanted to talk with the killer. Convinced this would also feed into his ego and help lure him out. If you're wondering what the cops thought about all of this, the answer is not much. Hansen was pretty tight-lipped about what he was trying to do. The theater manager at the Golden Gate apparently had an inkling the filmmaker was up to something, but no idea what exactly. Hansen suspects the manager would have shut him down if he knew. The cops, meanwhile, were kept largely out of the loop. Really, it's hard to imagine them signing off on this stunt if they did know. Even if Hansen did somehow catch the Zodiac, his methods would have likely been a legal nightmare for the cops and attorneys to navigate. What's really interesting to note here is that Hansen wasn't just a filmmaker trying to gain a little notoriety and cash in with his work. I genuinely believe he 100% wanted to be the guy to catch the Zodiac Killer. Whatever windfalls and opportunities came from that were not something he was focused on at the time. And in a stranger twist of fate, he actually had connections to the case, meeting with reporter Paul Avery who penned a title card message about the film for its release. While Hansen admits his stunt gave him some minor concerns about winding up in the crosshairs of a sadistic serial killer, he insists he was much calmer than Avery. Who knew what he was up to? Hanson tells some really funny stories about the reporter. Paul Avery, the writer for the Chronicle, he was absolutely petrified. Zodiac had sent him a Halloween card with, Boo, you're next, written on it, so one of Paul's roommates had put a sign over his door, Paul sleeps here. We'd have coffee and talk about, did anything happen today, and all that kind of shit. Paul was so goddamn paranoid. He was packing, he had a gun on him all the time. When we'd meet for coffee, I'd have to walk down one of those side streets from the theater so we could see that I was alone. At any rate, Hanson's plan was working. Audiences were coming to the screenings, and they were getting a steady flow of contest entries to compare against the Zodiac's handwriting. But several days in, they didn't really have anything to show for their efforts. But near the end of the week, things took a pretty gigantic turn, Hanson recounts. And then on the fifth or sixth night, I forget which night it was, one of those yellow cards came through the box. I was here the Zodiac. That was all that was on there. Well, I'd probably write this off as a prankster, and let's be honest, I'd have written, this is the Zodiac speaking, give me the prize and the killing stops on my card. Hansen saw this as their first big break in the case. There was only one catch. No one saw who dropped the card in the box because this was done at the same time they were trying to prevent Ray Cantrell from dying in the freezer. You might think this was a big missed opportunity, or just a prank that could have gotten out of hand. But here's where this crazy story gets really fucking batshit insane. With no visual to go on, Hansen headed for the restroom and, well, let me let him explain it in his own words from the Temple of Schlock interview. There were good-sized restrooms on the upper floor, where the movie was being shown and I went in to take a leak. I stood there at the urinal and the door opened behind me. It's not a big deal. People are going in and out of the bathroom. But then all of a sudden I noticed, what the hell? I heard the door and I didn't see anybody. So I just kind of turned my head a little bit and whoever it was started walking over toward the other urinals. There were urinals against one wall and some more against another wall. So I'm standing there taking a leak, and the guy who's taking a leak at the other urinal says, you know, real blood doesn't come out like that. And I said, oh yeah? At that point, I was done, and he was done, and he turned around, and I remember, to this day, I looked at the guy, because we had the one of posters of the Zodiac, and I made a noise. An animal noise. I was petrified. If that wasn't the poster, I gotta tell ya, man, I would have not made that kind of noise. To this day, Hansen insists the man who spoke to him in the restroom was the same man on the Zodiac wanted posters. So now he's convinced his plan has worked. The Zodiac is in the building. All he has to do is capture him. Hansen flees the restroom for the theater office where he bursts in and tells his guys the Zodiac is there and that he just spoke to him in the restroom. After a quick strategy session, they decide they're going to nab their killer as he exits the screening. From the projection booth, they spot their target and when the movie ends, they grab him and pull him into the office. <laughs> then things get weirder still. The guy comes willingly to the office. As Hanson recounts, he didn't complain, he didn't ask why these men were detaining him, or anything. He came to the office and was pleasant, and in just a few short moments had won over Hansen's team with stories about serving in Vietnam. Something that still irritates the filmmaker. To this day, I say to myself, what the hell happened in that office? Anyway, Hansen thought they could match his contest entry card to his ticket and prove he was the guy who wrote he was the Zodiac on the entry card. Something the theatergoer denied. But when they went to his seat, they found several other torn-up entries nearby. Remember earlier when I said that Hansom was telling the Ticket Girls to make sure every patron only got one card? Well, this was why. They couldn't prove what card was his, or if the other cards were his, so the whole thing was a botched job. They may have had the Zodiac Killer right in their hands, but they had no real way of proving it. But the fledgling serial killer hunter had one more trick up his sleeve. With his potential killer coming across as cool, calm, collected, and completely unflappable, Hansen decided to test his mettle and try to catch him off guard. So, completely out of the blue, he tells the man they've detained he was Zodiac victim Paul Stein's brother. Hansen wasn't, but he thought the admission might get a reaction. But to his dismay, all he got in response was an, oh, that's terrible. Their suspect did set off some alarm bells, though. He had no ID. He was just back from the military and was wearing military boots police had theorized the killer might have come from a military background based on footprints found at the Lake Berryessa crime scene. With no evidence and no legal right to detain the man in the first place, they turned him loose. Cops never showed up to ask why they detained this man, and Hansen couldn't shake the feeling he'd just come face to face with a killer. And lost the ensuing game of cat and mouse. Hansen wasn't giving up that easily, though. He was a man convinced, and his next idea was to call the man at home. During the interrogation, they learned their suspect had just gotten out of the military and was living in a nearby hotel. Hansen called repeatedly that night under the pretense of apologizing for the events earlier in the evening. His initial calls were unanswered, but around 1.30 a.m. he actually got a hold of the guy again acted quite nonchalantly about being detained by several other men. But lest you think this was all just Hansen being obsessed and seeing what he wanted to see, the story takes another weird twist the next morning. Hansen returns to the theater looking at receipts and the cards and suddenly the man from the night before is in the office with him. They make small talk with the guy insisting he'd just stop by on his way to apply for a job, but Hansen is convinced that this guy is the Zodiac and this is a reconnaissance mission to see if they're onto him. Whether this guy really was the Zodiac killer playing some kind of game with Hansen or just an exceedingly polite weirdo is not clear to this day, but Hansen was really like a dog with a bone here. He couldn't rule this guy out, but he was also in some pretty dire financial straits after losing the pizza man business and basically had to let it go. While the story of The Zodiac Killer being a sting operation never really got out back in 1971, as far as I can tell, the film was successful enough it got picked up for distribution. This is where the film's title changes from Zodiac to The Zodiac Killer officially. For his part, Hansen went on with his life, making a few more films, including A Ton of Grass Goes to Pot. But he wound up broke and returned to Wisconsin to run a farm this should be where the story of the zodiac killer ends but i promised you insanity and by god i'm gonna deliver Hansom returned to california in 1974 and he was still certain that at the very least the guy in the theater was responsible for the death of paul stein unwilling to let it go he teamed up with a couple of detectives from the east bay and a san francisco cop and laid another trap for this strange man he'd encountered the filmmaker figured out where his suspect worked and concocted an idea to get him to correspond with him using postcards like the ones the Zodiac used in some of his communications with the media. This time, the end goal was getting fingerprints, which would potentially link their guy to the bloody fingerprints at the Paul Stein crime scene. So Hansen informed the man he'd won a prize in a contest and that they needed him to write back and tell them where he wanted it mailed. To his modest surprise, the man did. And he wrote back on postcards Hansen says were like the ones the Zodiac had used. This was just the first part of the plan. The real goal here was to send him a prize, let him handle it, then immediately insist they'd send him the wrong prize so they could get it and obtain his prints from it. All in all, not the dumbest idea ever. Surprisingly, they actually pull off this ruse and take the box to their fingerprint tech and find no prints at all on the package. This is, of course, even more proof to Hansen. With that trap spoiled again, they really cross the line when they get the man, who it should be noted to this day remains unnamed in print as far as I can tell, fired from his job. As Hansen tells it, one of the investigators working with him wanted to pull his work file, so he called Bank of America where the potential suspect was employed. And like an idiot, when asked why he wanted the file, he told the person, "'We think he might be the Zodiac Killer.'" By this point, Hansen has been chasing this suspect for seven long years. His guy has moved, married an Asian woman, which is interesting because Hansen points out that some of Zodiac's letters mention the Mikado and marrying a, quote, bride of the Orient. It's a pretty flimsy connection, but given everything else here, it's just one more interesting coincidence or maybe proof. Between this and handwriting analysis of the postcards, the theater prize entry, and Zodiac letters, which Hansen says his handwriting expert called, quote, a perfect match, he's more convinced than ever that he's solved the case. He's reached this conclusion despite author Robert Graysmith reporting that the lead detective on the Zodiac case has already eliminated this man as a suspect. But we're not done with the crazy yet. Hansen is once again at sort of a dead end. He's got handwriting samples, he's got fingerprints, but he can't make the connections. So his next goal is to find the Zodiac's hidden stash of gear and trophies, and he thinks he knows exactly where it is. His suspect, prior to getting married and moving to Daly City, California, had kept something in storage at the hotel he was staying in. After marrying and moving into a house with a garage, he'd still kept a package at this sort of fleabag hotel. Hanson was convinced it was the kill kit and trophies. But how to get to it and prove it? In something out of a B-grade Ocean's Eleven movie, Hanson enlists the aid of one of his detectives, stuffs himself in a cardboard box, and gets stored in the storage room. And this actually works. But, much to his chagrin, he's made one costly mistake. The hotel does indeed have storage, but it has two storage areas. A short-term storage, and what they call a deep storage, which was an area where they'd keep things for people like soldiers on deployment and the like. Hansen had broken into the regular storage area, and his guy's stuff was in deep storage. Foiled again. All was not lost, though, as the police planned to conduct a warrant search on the space and hopefully find Zodiac's hood and other belongings once and for all. But in another unfortunate twist of fate, some police office politics involving the lead detective got that scuttled, and they never searched that space. After seven long years and lots of money, Hansen had to return to L.A. to make a living. In another unfortunate twist, the detectives working with him on the investigation allegedly stole his evidence file because Hansen hadn't paid them. Where are those postcards, the contest entry with the Zodiac was here, and the rest of all that stuff today? Your guess is as good as mine. And this is really where the story sort of ends. And I say sort of because Tom Hansen is one interesting dude and this was really just the tip of his iceberg. Hansen hoped to return to the make a movie, catch a monster category several more times during his life. He initially wanted to fund a project that would take him to South America in search of notorious Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. In his defense, Mengele was in South America. But he eventually set his sights on an equally notorious serial killer, BTK. Hansen talked about wanting to re-release the Zodiac Killer in the 2000s with the idea of proposing that BTK was the Zodiac. And this idea is not as crazy as it sounds. The theory that Dennis Rader was also Zodiac does get some play in true crime circles. As with the Zodiac, Hansen was convinced that BTK's ego would ensure he'd turn up at a screening. But in another strange twist of fate, the authorities actually apprehended Raider before Hansen could set this plan in motion. And to be fair, we do need to consider that Tom Hansen was one hell of a showman. I mean, one part William Castle and one part H.G. Lewis. He claims to have invented a cure for cancer, which I remain dubious of. He also seems fairly certain that there wasn't one single Zodiac killer, but there was a coordinated set of killers or some copycat. Again, not a totally far-fetched idea, but not one I'm entirely sold on either. Whether you believe Hansen came face-to-face with one of America's most notorious serial killers or just harassed some innocent dude for the better part of a decade is irrelevant, really. What's endlessly fascinating about this story is that Hansen basically pulled off an elaborate scheme to attempt to catch a killer. The Zodiac has never been captured. No one knows what happened to him. Why did he stop killing? Did he die? Did he get arrested for something else and no one ever connected the dots? Did his marriage mark the end of his urge to kill? Did he show up at one of these screenings completely undetected? Did he have enough slaves for the afterlife and decided to join them? Did he stop killing after his wife gave birth to Ted Cruz? I mean, we may never know. What I do know is that the story of the Zodiac Killer is as enthralling today as it was decades ago, and that Tom Hansen's absolutely bonkers plan to trap him with a movie screening is somehow even more fascinating. You really can't make this shit up. Normally, this show skews a little more towards talking about the movie being covered and why you should see it. With The Zodiac Killer, the story behind it, and the crazy planet was the centerpiece of are arguably more interesting than the film itself. To be fair, Hanson's film is oddly charming in that early 1970s low-budget way. The lighting is all over the place, the sound quality vacillates between too loud and too soft, and it's clear most of the people here aren't actors. the kills are surprisingly effective for a movie made for less than you could buy an entry-level new car for today. Agfa released the film on Blu-ray a few years back, and it's a really nice set that I highly recommend picking up. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and recommend two more titles to pair with this one for your next watch party. I think the obvious first choice here is David Fincher's 2007 film chronicling the same case, Zodiac. That one is a much more serious and much better made retelling of The Hunt for the Killer, and it remains arguably my favorite Fincher film. Definitely not a B-movie by any traditional metric, but it's still great. If you want a third film for your movie marathon, I'd highly recommend Charles B. Pierce's 1976 serial killer film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Like The Zodiac Killer, this one was loosely inspired by a true story about a killer in Texarkana. It pairs really nicely with The Zodiac Killer. Alright, enough prattling for me. Let's wrap this thing up. The story of the Zodiac Killer, both the actual criminal and this film, has captivated me for decades. I pored over Graysmith's book like it was going to be on a midterm, and the second I heard about this film, I knew I had to see it. Despite the mixed reviews and controversies over the exploitative nature of the work, The Zodiac Killer has etched its place in the history of true crime cinema. The film stands as a testament to the public's enduring fascination with unsolved mysteries and crime stories. It's release during a time of heightened public awareness and fear has contributed to its status as a cultural artifact, offering a unique perspective on a moment in history when reality and fiction collided in the pursuit of storytelling. As years have passed, the Zodiac Killer remains a subject of curiosity for cinephiles and true crime enthusiasts alike. Its legacy is tied not only to the controversial nature of its production, but also to its role in immortalizing the collective unease surrounding one of the most notorious unsolved cases in criminal history. The film's ability to capture the zeitgeist of a nation haunted by an elusive killer cements its place as a thought-provoking and controversial piece within the realm of true crime cinema. And let's be honest, it's just a totally crazy story to boot. So, what do you think of The Zodiac Killer? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and share them with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The Video Vault is now closed.